Welcome to Gateways, conversations about the people, places, and possibilities in our regional cities. I'm Amy Whedon. And I'm Ben Foreman. Lots been happening since we spoke last. I think we focused on the Opportunity Zone conversation, and since then, we had a meeting with thought leaders uh, to talk about how Massachusetts could take advantage of that program. Yeah, which thank you to uh, Mass Housing, who uh, hosted us for that event over at their space, their new space, um, at One Beacon. And I think that the conversation um, was really great. I think that um, a lot of people... Um, in Opportunity Zones keep saying, the more I learn, the less I know. Um, But we're really uh, looking forward to diving into these questions and following the program as it develops. Um, And uh, we released a paper uh, last week following the thought leader meeting about Opportunity Zones and transit-oriented development in our gateway cities. Uh, I hope everyone will take a look at that. It shows you know how the Opportunity Zones align with transit do- development opportunity and station areas and gateway cities. And that's going to be the topic of, of our next part. So this week I had a great conversation with Alan Baruby, my old boss at the Brookings Institution. He was your boss? In the, I didn't know he was the, your boss. All right. The keynote speaker uh, at our event down in New Bedford last month. So we talked with him about his presentation to that group, which was really well received, and his thinking about the future of older industrial cities across the country and uh, how they're finding new opportunities and sowing growth throughout their regions. Yeah, Alan did a great job presenting at the summit um, and really was able to articulate, I think, complicated um, complicated strategies um, for these, you know, smaller mid-sized communities. So I'm looking forward to listening to that. We talk shop a little bit, Alan and I. Okay, good. There's a little bit about the business of think tank work and what it's like and, and you know, how, how we've approached it. In our- and Amy talked to Hugh Dunn. Yeah, so I talked to Hugh Dunn, um, who is the executive director of the South Coast um, Development Partnership um, and also a recent awardee of our Gateway Cities Innovation Awards. Thank you so much for joining us. Starting with your findings, Ellen, I know um, you're from Worcester. You've cared a lot as much as as many people, but I think all of us care a lot about these places. Um, You know, you you put out a report in the spring that took another look at how they fared um, in the recovery. And you want to just talk a little bit about your view uh, of the world? My family was a part of the, you know, that kind of mill city economy. I mean, not working in the mills, of course, but, you know, my dad worked in manufacturing his entire career in wire and cable manufacturing, which is a, you know, strong cluster in New England. And, you know, he worked among a bunch of mill cities, you know, starting in Worcester, uh, you know, then in Dorchester, uh, you know, worked down in Waterbury, Connecticut for a long time, up in Manchester, New Hampshire. So, uh, you know, so these kinds of places, um, you know, hold a special place for me, you know, and, and you know, how I grew up and, you know, what I, what I thought of cities and, and indeed, like, why I think I, you know, cared about cities. Um the you know sort of history of you know, when you and I got here to, to Brookings in the late '90s, early 2000s, the, you know, the story of cities in America was, you know, was mostly one of kind of despair and deficit. You know, what are we going to do about poverty and lack of good housing and safety problems in our cities? And I think you know, as you and I have been working on these issues over the last two decades, the, the perception of cities has changed quite a lot. 
mostly characterized, though, by the, you know, by places like Boston and New York and Washington, D.C. and San Francisco and Seattle and these kind of superstars of the global economy. And I remember looking at the 2000 census data when we first started looking at them and seeing how they mm-hmm. did in the 90s. And right. Talk about right. comeback cities. And Bruce was saying, you know, tone that down. They're all stinking <laughs> cesspools still. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, not to say there weren't sticking cesspools, but, you know, there, uh, there was a renaissance and a rebirth in a lot of, Amer- you know, American downtowns at that time. And they became safer places. I think the management of a lot of these cities improved over the, the 1990s, just the professionalism of, you know, the jobs of mayors and, um, you know, city officials. Uh, you know, national philanthropies, I think, increasingly turned their attention toward cities in new and creative ways. So it's just a good time, I think, to be in the urban policy business. The, the, I think the, the caveat, though, is that that kind, of, that kind of rebirth and that kind of prosperity didn't extend equally to all kinds of cities, right? So the cities that had like a real foothold and an ability to transition into the tech economy, that, that was the predominant storyline of this, this urban renaissance, right? Those, place, those sorts of places I was just mentioning. Places like Worcester and Manchester and Waterbury and and all sorts of other cities across the Northeast and the Midwest were I, I you know that wasn't exactly their story either. And in fact, as the as the late two thousands rolled around, the Great Recession rolled around, you know the the historic base of a lot of these city economies, st- you know, still in manufacturing, took another real beating. Uh, and what we call these older industrial cities. I, you know, many of them we see still, you know, struggling to find like, well, what's that next? You know, manufacturing is just a shell of its former self in these places that has huge effects on the middle class, on the built environment. What is going to replace it? What's going to be the new source of prosperity in these places? Because frankly, there are still a lot of people who live in these places. Uh, and these places have a lot of assets that can be built on, but I think we haven't. I think we haven't maybe dedicated sufficient attention, creativity, investment to to what we can make of those places. So that was that was sort of the motivation for the report that we put out in the spring. Yeah, and you know, thinking back to that period, you know, in the late '90s, early 2000s, when we were still sort of cheerleading the big cities and making the case, there was a lot of talk about the productivity advantages that an agglomeration economy would have, and you know, how that did position those places uh, to be competitive in a knowledge economy. And I don't think at the time we really had any idea how powerful those forces would shape up to be. Yeah, especially since, you know, that that was, you know, that was sort of the dawn of the Internet age too, right? And I think, you know, for every person, you know, saying, hey, this new knowledge economy has these really impressive agglomerative effects. You're sort of bringing together talent with capital and you're sort of connecting these cities to one another. You know, folks like, you know, Saskia Sassen and others sort of kind of saw this early. A whole bunch of other people are saying like, the internet will free us all to live wherever we want to live. We can go live on a mountaintop and work in these, you know, knowledge economies. And people were seeing like, uh, you know, hints of a rural renaissance in the data in the 1990s. And they said like, okay, this is the great, this is the next great, force of dispersal in the American economy. So after sort of suburbanization of the building of highways and, you know, the GI Bill in the in the nineteen forties and fifties, you know, the internet was going to unleash everybody to live everywhere and it couldn't be the you know the further death of cities. And in fact it had for many, many cities the absolute opposite effect, which is the people who work in these tech jobs and the sort of nature of innovation in the modern economy prizes 
density, prizes proximity, uh, and the the exchange of ideas and knowledge and uh, you know shared assets for innovation that like Alfred Marshall was writing about hundred years ago. Although I don't think he imagined anything like this. Yeah. So where does that leave our our mid-sized regional cities? I think you know one of our panelists in New Bedford, Chris Rosendis, who's a tech guy. Um, you know, he sort of made the case that your competitive advantage is actually being a real place yeah. <laughs> uh, with real people, with a real industry. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there's not that much of it left, it's really, it's really what you are, and you need to play to that strength. Yeah, and I do think that, you know, I think uh, for all kinds of cities and places that, um, you know, that distinctiveness and that, you know, I think you and uh, my colleagues wrote way back when about quality of place. Sort of what is that? How do you measure it? Why is it important? Um, I, I do think that has risen in its prominence economically in the last you know ten to twenty years. In part, it's just I think a generational thing. Like <laughs> I grew up in the suburbs. Like you grew up in the suburbs, and uh, you know it's the rejection of the things that you know our parents. <laughs> gave us in the places that we grew up and saying, oh, you know, we want something, we want something different than that. And, you know, urbanity and a sense of place and distinctiveness is a, it's a part of that. And I do think that's why you've seen the movement of Gen X and, and the millennial generation back towards, back towards older places, back towards cities that have that, that distinctive quality of place, that, that lack of sameness that I think characterized a lot of the places where we grew up. At the same time, it's the, it's, it's those assets that you know have always kind of existed and in some places are growing in these older industrial or gateway cities as you call them in Massachusetts that i think have you know renewed value if not increased value in the knowledge economy it's it's universities it's the research capacity of these institutions it is the small uh, dense environments in downtowns and corridors that enable that kind of proximity on which the knowledge economy thrives that you can't really find in most of suburbia. It's the connectivity that allows people to travel back and forth between the bigger hubs like Boston and the smaller hubs like Worcester and Bedford and Haverhill. Uh, I think that you know that ability to, to, to travel back and forth, not, on our, not necessarily on our choked highways, but uh, on modes of transportation that, that allow people to frankly, work and connect with one another while they do it. I think all of those things are, you know, those are among the kinds of assets that I think in many parts of the country, but I think in particular in Massachusetts, have repositioned these places for greater success in the modern economy. So when you look at places like Northeast Ohio and the cities in Michigan and across upstate New York, I mean, you think it's their urbanity that's going to lead to their rebirth? Or do you... Or is it more just a recommitment to industrial policy and, and getting better about growing the industrial base out of yeah, it's probably yeah. with that legacy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it especially for those places. It can't be it can't be either or. It's kind of got to be be an all of the above strategy. I mean, when we looked at the we looked at the sort of seventy major cities in the Northeast and the Midwest and sort of parts of the, the near South that fit this older industrial definition that our report developed, um, you know, there tend to be five things that we saw that were really associated with 
uh, economic performance. And the cities that had these things and that exploited these things were those that, you know, on average tended to do better over time. Uh, you know, definitely the presence of research universities, especially those with a really substantial track record of effective public-private collaboration, that was a you know, really huge influence on economic vitality. And I think the places that saw that first and leveraged that first, I think of Pittsburgh, I even think of a place like Lowell, where uh, you know UMass Lowell, I think, is a is a great leader in New England on innovation and partnership uh, with local businesses. That's a that's a that's a huge thing to be taken advantage of. So yeah, when I look at a when I look at a Northeast Ohio, and I look at uh, you know uh, Case Western or uh, Cleveland State, it's hard for me to imagine the the rebirth, rejuvenation of that city, or frankly, the rest of Northeast Ohio with Youngstown State and University of Akron, absent really investing in and leveraging the the deep specializations that those kinds of institutions have built over time. Yes, and on top of that, absolutely committing to the committing to the core, uh, you know, reversing the the tide of sprawl that I think has, you know, put those put those communities under sort of deep fiscal stress and uh, you know brought about the kind of deep economic and racial segregation that tends to hold back community progress and a sense of of shared purpose. That's that's absolutely you know. That's absolutely part of uh, a rejuvenation and renewal strategy as well. Yeah, so let's come back to that inclusive growth piece in a minute. But I just you pointed out UMass Lowell. I want to talk about the public universities and regional economic development. You know, I think Lowell is a good example, and we certainly see in Worcester um, the economic activity and spinoff of UMass Medical. Yeah, absolutely. But out in Amherst, not so much, and I think the Pioneer Valley, the lagging uh, performance of an economy that was once an industrial leader, mm-hmm. you, know, it, you know, I think we can really tie closely to the fact that we don't have any sort of university R&D presence moving, moving things forward out there. Mm-hmm. And the same is sort of true on the South Coast where we were in New Bedford, I think. UMass Dartmouth has, has underperformed in its ability to create commercial activity, especially around the marine economy. And they've got a new chancellor who was with us who definitely has a lot of energy, I think, wants to change that. But uh, one thing we do point out a lot is that some of our states that are more driven by public universities, you can sort of see a clear connection to more regional economic development, you know, coming out of places like Madison, Wisconsin, or... or yeah, or out uh, of Columbus state, and Ohio State. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah, yeah and, and I think, right, that is the, that's the, the blessing and the curse of having, you know, an MIT and a Harvard and Massachusetts is they take, I think they, they suck, up, suck up a lot of oxygen in the innovation economy in the state. Uh, and, you know, they're responsible for, you know, incredible innovations and a state economy that, you know, top line aggregate is, is humming right along with the best of them nationally and internationally. And, the incredible growth of the greater Boston economy, um, but you know, th- casts a bit of a shadow, I think, over you know what I think is a very strong um, you know public university higher education system in the state of Massachusetts as well. Uh, but you know, when you think about where innovation occurs and when you invest in innovation, I think the I think the assets that exist in many of these um, older industrial areas of the state. And you know, and the effectiveness of the collaboration with the public universities there, yeah, it, it it isn't what it could be. I I wonder whether 
you know, having, <laughs> you know, a lot of New England states are like that. I mean, think about Connecticut where UConn is in stores, right? Uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, where, where UNH is. You know, the fact that, that UMass is in Amherst, which isn't exactly one of the, the older mill cities, right? It's just a small college town. Dartmouth, where UMass Dartmouth is, it's near New Bedford, but it's not in New Bedford. And so I just, I wonder as the state thinks about the future of these gateway city economies, uh, and especially those that, that don't themselves have one of these important anchor colleges and universities, public colleges and universities, what, what we could do to expand the footprint of those institutions yeah. in ways that, no, yeah, that bring them into the downtown and promote mm-hmm. greater collaboration with the, the private sector in those places. Yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of envious of Pennsylvania when you think about it. They've got University of Pennsylvania, they've got Carnegie Mellon and yeah. driving growth in different corners of the state. Yeah, and yet, right, right in the middle, they invest in Penn State to be a public u- research university that's mm-hmm. creating a lot of activity. Maybe if we had the Nittany Lions, we'd have that kind of commitment. To the, <laughs> the system. Yeah, the Minutemen probably aren't doing it for most people that way. <laughs> no, no, that could be the difference right yeah. here. <laughs> so on inclusive growth, though, because I think, you know, Mayor Tyre came out from Pittsfield, and I think her question for you was, you know, you, you, you had a connection between places that were succeeding and places that were growing. Uh, in a balanced way and didn't have large racial and ethnic disparities, which is a real concern for us. So how do those how do those places close those gaps and make sure that they're creating opportunity for all? Yeah, I mean, it's probably worth sort of naming it and describing this this thing we call inclusive growth, because, which gets you know thrown around, I think, increasingly these days in you know, economic development, equity corridors. But um, I think when we think about what inclusive growth means uh, for a place, it's it's really three things. It's bo- it's growth that expands local opportunities for businesses and workers. It's what we call prosperity. So uh, that's mean that means really job quality. The, the you know, how much are jobs paying? Do they provide you know benefits? Uh, and how is that contributing to the overall rise in the standard of living in a place? And then inclusion. Uh, which is really about the distribution of that growth throughout the continuum. Uh, you know, is growth actually providing benefits for all communities? And in doing so, is it, uh, is it A, lifting everybody up, but also B, doing the harder work of reducing disparities by income, by race, uh, and by place? And yeah, I mean, definitely we see older industrial cities and the mass gateway cities facing some challenges in all of those dimensions, definitely on the, the growth side, right? That, you know, these are places that lost their manufacturing base over the second half of the 20th century. But, you know, in fact, their job growth has has been rebounding. Um, the On the prosperity dimension, I think, you know, the, the issue of job quality, there are, I think about an economy like Worcester where there are more jobs and sort of high tech, both, you know, Technology development and you know digital manufacturing coming online and advanced healthcare. So so good growth at the top, but a lot of growth at the bottom and sort of crummy jobs that don't pay very good wages. You know provide uh, provide the kind of income that sustains families. So so productivity and standards of living are a measure, and then inclusion I think is a is a shared challenge across all these older industrial cities, all of the gateway cities where. In general, white households are earning, in Massachusetts at least, we saw anywhere from 20% to 120% more in the major gateway cities than, than households of color are. And, and what Mayor Tyre and I talked about is that, you know, the research both sort of, if you look and domestically and internationally, uh, that the, the 
the places that tend to do the best over time across all of these dimensions of inclusive economic growth are those that get the inclusion thing right to begin with. And that you know, when they do grow, they're growing in a balanced way. They're creating opportunities to grow the middle class, to, to move more people up into the middle class. Um, and that, in a way, that, that inclusive growth actually uh, provides the, the, the sustainable basis where, where the city can continue to make investments in growth because everybody sees the benefits in that uh, rather than, you know, this becoming a sort of con- politically contentious and divisive agenda where people think they have to trade off equity versus growth. And I don't think successful cities can do that. So, so in fact, you know, being inclusive means that you're able to continue to grow over time because if, you, if you're not, uh, the, the investments that you need to make to grow are going are gonna to dissipate. So that, that was, you know, I think that's the, the shared challenge. That's not just for gateway cities. That's for Boston and New York and those other places too. But I think being intentional about how we do economic development in a way that, that reaches the communities that, that tend to get left behind and have gotten left out of the last couple waves of growth is, is crucially important. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good kind of segue to to um, what I wanted to conclude with, Alan, and talking a little bit about our jobs and, and how we go about it. I think, you know, someone was asking me, you know, what's the difference between the think tank work and academic work? And I think at the end of the day, we kind of pride ourselves on producing something that's actionable mm-hmm. and getting things done, getting things done. But, um, you know, if you judge your accomplishments on what you get done, then you, you're obviously in involving yourself into the political realm, (laughs) legislative realm. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to start to make compromises, lose your objectivity, Um, especially when you're representing a a set of cities that are out there that are underrepresented and, um, you know, you're you're representing them from afar in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I I mean, how do you deal with all the ethical quandaries and how do you see kind of the the work and, you know, what makes somebody... effective at it and um, <laughs> how much time how much time you got <laughs> um, that's no I that that's yeah that is the existential question of our business um, but I think but you know I won't speak for you you should you should you should say your piece on this but what I think drove you to to go to Massachusetts and to do this work in Massachusetts um, and what you know, drives me to continue to work on cities and, and by extension, in some cases, state policy is the, you know, the opportunity to get traction around some of the stuff that we work on and people in the policymaking realm who's, you know, who see their job as advancing, advancing change and accomplishing things and getting things done and delivering for their constituents in a way that's often way too absent in Washington and in the federal infrastructure. So... You know, I'm here at this August, you know, 102 year old institution in DC. You know, for most of its history, the main audience for which was Washington policymakers. You know, folks in the State Department and the congressional committees, and uh, you know, even in some cases, uh, influencing how we we build the judiciary. Um, and we're this, you know, little little shop, little think tank within the think tank that's trying to think about the rest of America outside of what goes on in Washington, thinking about these major cities and, and our states and how they contribute to national prosperity. And I guess what I've found is like, 
yeah, I mean, Brookings and, and sort of what I do, you know, in in rare instances, you know, my colleagues and I here can have success in interfacing with policymakers at the local level, the regional level, the state level, often in collaboration with their colleagues in business, in the civic and philanthropic sector, and advancing change over time, right? Getting them to, you know, adopt a smart policy idea or two based on some research that we did. It's why we try to vacuum up as many examples of good things that are going on around the country and basically retailing them to people who haven't done them yet. But the, I think the real power, and it's, it, there's, there's not enough of this opportunity and alignment, is you know, a national organization like ours in partnership, uh, you know, formal and informal with an organization like Mass Inc., that's closer, that's closer to the process, that's, you know, all the time sort of connected to the policymakers, the local and the state officials who are advancing change. And then those those same kind of civic business organizations sort of committed to the the longer term agenda, who, you know, can can use the kind of research that we do, the ideas that we're putting out there, but I think can put them into practice and create this feedback loop between local and state change and kind of our agenda that is tremendously powerful. And uh, I think I told you that I told you this when I was up in up in New Bedford, but I wish we had 50 mass inks. And I'm not just saying this to butter up you and your audience, but <laughs> I think I think that is that is the model that more of our more of our places need, especially our older industrial places and the kind of work that you guys do to organize among them in the caucus, in the legislative caucus, among the mayors. There's power in numbers and power in these networks, both within states and then across states and between state-based and national-based organizations that I think is crucial to doing good work, but then making sure that work gets applied in smart all right. This has been great, Alan. Okay. Be well. Okay. Say hello to the family. We'll do. We'll you talk too, with you soon. Okay. Take care. So what did you think, Amy? I thought it was a great conversation. I was super impressed when Alan was here in New Bedford. Um, his approach to inclusive economic growth um, in gateway cities across the nation um, is – is a conversation that needs to be had. I think one thing that resonated with me the most was when you asked if it was the um, urban nature of the cities um, that were going to drive uh, redevelopment or uh, revitalization. He said, no, it's an all-of-the-above strategy. You really need to have you know, uh, multiple pieces moving at the same time in order for revitalization to really take hold in these types of communities. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing your conversation with Hugh Dudd because I think that really gets to and all the above strategy. And also, you know, it's great for folks like Alan and me who like to think about things to to run their mouths on podcasts. But (laughs) sometimes uh, it's important to hear from people who live in the real world and do the actual work. So I think let's let's listen in to hear Hugh. We were just with Hugh down in New Bedford um, for our Gateway Cities Annual Summit and Luncheon Awards. um, And um, the South Coast... Um, Development Partnership was actually honored as one of our awardees this year um, for their work in the blue economy, and more specifically, a grant that they um, just received um, yep. from the EDA and, um, and and now some state funding. So, Hugh, welcome. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. 
Great. Um, so why don't you, Hugh, get us up to speed on um, this project, uh, you know, where it came mm-hmm. from, uh, what the goals are, and um, how you think it's going to um, impact the South Coast region. Sure. So this project um, arises from a conversation that we kicked off perhaps three years ago with Congressman Kennedy, where he came to the region and met with uh, the South Coast Development Partnership. And the partnership is a collaboration of the largest uh, companies, nonprofits, and higher ed institutions in the region. Uh, and it's chaired by the Chancellor of the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, as well as Nick Chris, President of Bacos Bank, and Dave Slutes, uh, uh, the president of Presix uh, Management. Uh, so the congressman came to the region and identified that this region has a lot to offer, but more often than not, we are competing against each other and not working uh, in a unified uh, way to really attract uh, economic development opportunities to the South Coast. Uh, he also highlighted uh, opportunities for collaboration with Rhode Island, understanding that we have a lot of shared workforce, uh, cultural uh, ties, and just uh, the way that uh, that commuting um, uh, that folks commute in this area, we're like geographically closer to the uh, uh, Providence uh, area, and we're grouped in there uh, for federal purposes when it comes to census tracts. Um, oh, really? That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, New Bedford, I believe, as well as Fall River fall within the uh, Providence Metro. Um, interesting. So that means when they look at uh, federal funding for infrastructure and other type of programs that they look at you guys as that as the sort of Providence, Rhode Island region. Right. Yeah. Wow. It, OK. Yeah. So. So we kicked off a study with the Public Policy Center at UMass where we explored all of this uh, between southeastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And one of the interesting things that we discovered is that we have a uh, emerging industry cluster in marine science and technology. Um, you know, it, it was also apparent that our maritime economy in southeastern Mass is, is strong. And this industry... Uh, right now it's, it makes up the second highest rate of employment related to the ocean, um, at 13% of the overall jobs in, uh, in the maritime economy. But with just that 13%, it comprises 35% of the entire industry's wages. So, you know, for example, uh, an unmanned underwater vehicle engineer makes $145,000 a year whereas the average or the median income for a New Bedford family right now is between 21 to 23,000. You know, when you look at the ocean economy, uh, it's estimated to have such impressive growth over the next 30 years that it's really, uh, actually it's less than, over the next 12 years, it's, it's predicted to double. So the ocean economy is supposed to go from 1.5 trillion to three trillion by 2030, and those numbers are conservative, and that's from the wow, that's yeah, cool. that's from uh, I believe it's the Oceans Economic Development Council. It's a Paris-based organization, and so uh, it, it seems like we're like right uh, at the right time for this to really kind of uh, launch a regional project to kind of uh, harness the uh, the economic powers of the ocean. 
So we only have a couple more minutes here. So I just want to get to um, some of the goals and outcomes that you're looking for Mm -hmm. um, in this project. You mentioned, you noted the incredible income disparity between um, sort of the, I would, I'm just going to classify them as sort of like old school existing sector jobs in the region. And then this emerging sector with the opportunity to grow them, um, you know, fourfold, fivefold. Um, how 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 are you? How do you think that this grant um, and this work is going to help support um, closing that yep. that income gap? Um, you know, is it is it focused on workforce development training? Uh, you know, what's what's the plan there? Yeah, so uh, it's a three year project, um, and uh, the first year comprises is consists of a um, a comprehensive industry study of the marine science and technology uh, uh, industry. So we're looking at the region, we're looking at the sectors, we're looking at workforce, we're doing a SWOT analysis, uh, creating a strategic plan, uh, and really starting to align the public-private sector uh, around these goals. Um, In year two, we establish a marine science and technology corridor alliance with partners from through Cape Cod to the South Coast and potentially Rhode Island as well, who has a uh, strong industry and higher ed cluster in this. Um, and in year two, we kick off a uh, aggressive program of work, which includes launching program activities and workforce training, uh, branding and marketing the region, and uh, increasing our capacity to uh engage in innovation and research. Um, so a lot of that, that programmatic activity will be steered by the findings in year one. So we're all, um, we're off to the races with that study and, mm-hmm. you know, okay. excited to see what it, uh, what it says we should be focusing on, but I'm also getting I- ideas Great. here at this, uh, at this conference, uh, something that San Diego has done with their entire, uh, school district is launch a, uh, Blue STEM Academy, where they're kind of uh, uh, putting together uh, classes in a uh, blue tech theme. Um, so those types of uh, uh, things are something are things that I think the region would be. Um, uh, it would be great for the That's- region to look at. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach. I know, you know, Massachusetts generally, um, they have the STEM Council and focuses with uh, DESE um, on that um, and the administration. But looking at the, you know, uh, sector-specific STEM work is something that um, could be a really interesting model to see here in um, in our seaport districts. So that's, that's really yeah, interesting. Absolutely. Um, all right, so um, we are quickly running out of time here. So one last mm-hmm. question: what do you what do you see as the biggest um, opportunity for the region in doing this work? Is it um, you know is it is it workforce development? Is it um, establishing a new sector? Is it you know the regional? Um, collaboration aspect of it, uh, or is it all of the above? Just curious, sort of what your 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 main focus on the opportunity. So is. I think from the uh, partnerships perspective, 
something that we found here uh, while I've been speaking with the folks at uh, this in, this uh, group in San Diego, the uh, Maritime Alliance, is they were able to put together a blue voice for their region where they really speak to higher ed, they speak to policymakers, and they speak to the industry, and they align everybody to uh, to tackle the issues that will allow this industry sector to thrive. So I think that's the most exciting thing for us is coming together around a shared goal that will uh, that will really increase prosperity uh, from the Cape Cod Canal to, through Providence. I think that's a really exciting thing. And I don't think we've seen um, a project that really uh, unifies all these partners. And it, it looks like the ocean is going to be that unifying factor. And we're, we're uh, really excited to be getting uh, uh, getting started with this project. Well, thank you, Hugh, so much for your time. And it's really encouraging to see uh, regional and local communities embracing um, their, I would say, natural mm -hmm. in this case, since yep. it's the ocean assets, um, to look at new industries that are going to support inclusive growth um, locally, but then also Absolutely. regionally. Uh, safe travels. I hope you enjoy your time in yeah. San Diego. Are you doing anything fun um, out there? Well, the weather's pretty tough out here. Uh, <laughs> I, I may take in a few sites. It's not that bad in Massachusetts yeah. right now, but enjoy Thank yourself. You. Enjoy yourself. I hear the yeah, zoo's yeah. good out there. Pleasure to be with you this morning. Well, thanks very much to Alan and Hugh for being part of our podcast, and thanks to all of you for listening this week. We're really looking forward to having Sal Lupoli on next. He's an entrepreneur in transit-oriented development in Gateway Cities. Transit-oriented development in Gateway Cities has really been the talk of the town uh, with, with lots of uh, different ongoings and events. So um, we're going to get Sal's view as a developer. Great. And I just want to give a quick uh, Gateway City shout out to uh, Mayor Driscoll in Salem. The uh, uh, crosswalks on Canal Street going into downtown are beautiful and a nice addition. Um, and so it's just fabulous, uh, fabulous way to redevelop the downtown and make it a place that people want to be. So congrats to you on uh, all the work that's going on in, in downtown Salem. Thank you for tuning in to Gateways, conversations about the people, places, and possibilities in our regional cities. Gateways is produced by Rachel Deck and Lear Johansson. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast.